show is good, the hoe is good, the show is good, you know it's grub. Cool as me out front, they can't cool, so can't fuck, you know it's love. Clean as tight, even no head and shoulders, hoe, you know it's grub. Shout out to my kinfolk, just got on that Coca Cola scrub. Watch my profile and my go kart, this might get away as fuck. In my hood, we call it book, fuck by what you think of me. All my hoes be nice and dance, all she want is chicken grease, all you know is what It is August 5th. 2016, and this is the pilot episode of the newest show on the Wrestling With Words audio network, Psychology is Dead. I am your host, Quentin Moody. You probably should recognize me from Surpresa S. Lucha or from Tapper Snap, but on this new venture, um, I'll be doing this not by myself. I'll be the only um, regular host. And I'll have a rotating um, panel of co-hosts with me. And this week, um, I have from the Place to Be Nation Network on the PWO um, PTBN feed and the PTBN Pop feed from This Week in Wrestling and from Lucha Undead, Timothy. Timothy, how are you? I'm doing good. I wonder how many people... Uh... Could figure that out just from before you even said my name based on saying that I had a show on both feeds. Because now that I think about it, I don't know that there's too many people who do. Um, I'm trying to get the hat trick. I'm trying to get a show on the third PTBN feed. I want to be the first guy to have a show on all three feeds, but we'll see how that goes. Um, but otherwise, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, how are you doing tonight, Quentin? I'm really excited. I actually didn't know that there was a third feed. <laughs> like This is like yeah. news to me. <laughs> Um, okay, so there's the P. So this is the point of uh, kind of get to know PTB and PWO, right? You would think. Uh, I, I guess I'm not doing my job well, but there's actually the PTB and PWO feed. That's where stuff like between the sheets, um, where the big boys play, Titans of Wrestling, kind of the hardcore wrestling stuff, the more old school and fringe, like you know, uh, Japanese. That's where those podcasts are. Then there's the PTBN Pop Feed. That's the new one with uh, Lucha Underground or Lucha Undead, um, where it's not even about wrestling. And then there's also the PTBN, um, like kind of place to be nation proper, just PTBN feed. And that's the um, that's the one where you got like the place to be nation podcast. You got main events. You've got the new uh, headlines and clotheslines. Which every time I mention that podcast, I have to reference that my good friend uh, Mario uh, Susato made the. Um, the art for that podcast, just because he's such a great guy. He also made the art for Lucha Undead podcast, the new one. Um, guy is just phenomenal, a little artist, and he makes some great stuff. So always got to get a chance to plug him. But yeah, there's actually technically three different podcast feeds over there for PTBN. Yeah, that's news to me. I actually didn't know about that um, third feed you were talking about. So I might have to just um, check out some of the stuff on there because I actually do a lot. Um, do like a lot of the stuff um, that PTBN does. Um, and I. Pretty much forgot to mention what the concept of this show is. Um, as I mentioned, the name of this show is Psychology is Dead. And pretty much what I'll be doing um, whenever I record the show, because I don't plan on making this a weekly thing, um, is just talk about the different aspects of psychology and professional wrestling. And it's such um, a loaded topic in a few ways because it can go in a bunch of different directions and obviously everyone has different sensibilities and that will all go back to the you know phrase that you know blank is subjective so I'll try to have on as many different viewpoints 
from people when it comes to the topics that we'll be discussing. So, of course, um, we'll discuss selling. We'll discuss some um, psychology in the context of certain promotions. Like we'll discuss psychology in the context of say a Dragon Gate or a Michinoku Pro. We'll um, talk about the psychology in tag team wrestling. Um, so it'll just be a whole bunch of things that we can go in um, a bunch of different directions for. And I just think it's a really interesting concept. Um, to get into deeper discussions about psychology, because I think it is a very cool topic. Um, and just so I can, you know, get to understand um, certain people better um, for where they come from with certain viewpoints that they have. Um, and the reason I actually had Timothy um, on here as the first guest was because he was just like someone that I actually just found like really interesting with the way that he viewed stuff and the way that he was able to explain his opinions. So he was just someone that I respected a lot. And I think for the pilot episode, there really wasn't anyone that I can think of that would be better um, to do it with. So there I really go- appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So there goes me blowing up Tim's ego and we're not even five minutes into the show yet. But um, what we'll be talking about um on this installment is the Beyond Trilogy, or the Skillogy as they marketed it, as of Zack Sabre Jr. versus um Jonathan Gresham, and we'll also be talking about um Zack Sabre Jr.'s um persona and character, and we'll also be talking about um what was a controversial or a hot topic back in April, and that was the Timothy Thatcher angle that was going on um, with Evolve on um, WrestleMania weekend. Um, so I guess with that out of the way, are you ready to get into um, the meat and potatoes of the show with um, Zach and Gresham? Yeah, yeah, of course. Right, so we're starting off with Zach versus Gresham, and... This was a feud that really caught my eye, and we'll get into reasons why um, later, of course. But it caught my eye for a few reasons, as in like the escalation of the feud. Obviously, the two people in it are two of my favorite wrestlers in the world right now, and it happened in a interesting place, a place where I wouldn't expect a feud like this to happen in Beyond Wrestling, where what they do is so hit and miss with me um just to bounce something off of you i mean like what is your you know kind of relationship with beyond as far as being um a wrestling fan uh i mean i've been really into beyond for as about as uh, about as long as i knew it existed and what really got me started with it was i think the, the Biff Busick-Timothy Thatcher match from the studio taping days, um, and even the Biff Busick-AR Fox match. I mean, you know, to everyone I think who knows Beyond pretty well, the company really was kind of built on the back of Biff Busick. That's kind of what makes this Ace of Beyond storyline so interesting is that it really is about replacing Biff Busick since he left, and that's the only reason why there is this kind of vacuum at the top of the, the food chain of Beyond. Uh, and so... To me, I think Beyond is a company that is really hitting these growing pains, especially with an, with an owner who has this amazing vision to me. 
And I really think there was a time when I was first really getting excited about Beyond where I was essentially saying that I think Denver, Colorado, uh, Drew Cordero is kind of like the the modern day, you know, Paul Heyman or Jim Cornette or Dave Sapolsky from early ROH. The guy who's got these ideas that are so kind of radically different but also so just basically wrestling and so not sports entertainment that he can kind of create a change. Uh, I, I tweeted at him once and I said, someone's got to put together this network. It was before the High Spots Network existed. I said, someone's got to put together this streaming service network of all the indie companies, and I think Drew Cordero is the guy that can pull it off. And he kind of laughed it off and he you know, responded to me essentially saying, like, I'm not going to deal with the headache. But I just feel like he's the guy who really, he's got these connections, he's got these great ideas, and some of his stuff hits and when his stuff hits I don't think that there's any company that comes close to matching beyond for the creativity and the match output when his stuff hits but then when his stuff misses it's this fucking year long crusade for change you know eight man tags that have been just the worst part of the cards over and over again or it's you know bad work shoot angles with Joey Janela or you know it's the Kimberly Pazuzu bomb thing that I think got them some attention but in the end I don't know if it really built anything to them or you know it's overbooking and, and this is going to be sacrilege but for me it's it's overbooking Nick Gage who kind of completely derailed the company for a while I think because for me it was turning into a company that I was really enjoying watching and then I saw Nick Gage versus Jocka and it turned me off so bad that I stopped watching Beyond for a couple months you know so that's really that's where my fandom is with Beyond I took a break um, around that time, I came back in full swing, and I kind of got myself caught back up. And, and like I said, I just—it's a company that I love watching, and it's a company that at times I hate watching. It's just—it's this really weird hybrid combination. They don't seem to be consistent at all, but the highs are worth it to me. Yeah, like that's kind of where I'm at with them too. I mean, um, I would describe it as I have a love-hate relationship with them too. I mean, for instance, um, last year when they were just pushing Donovan Dijak and. Dijak was having these killer matches like all over the card like again I loved it that showed me that Donovan Dijak could legitimately be a star in this business when ROH isn't doing anything with him beyond is making Donovan Dijak look like a million bucks and then as you mentioned like the crusade for change is like such a turn off for me like it actually they like almost like single handedly ruined Beyond's mid card like it's a really weird thing where like, the, like if I see um, Crusade for Change, like it's an auto skip for me. So, and then you mentioned some of the booking issues. I mean, I'll say it. I mean, you meant you called it sacrilege, but I'll just be honest. I never really understood the ironic Nick Gage fandom that was going on last year. So like that's just me. So him being in Beyond and him getting pushed, like that wasn't something that I was particularly into either. But, you know, since they, um, since 2016 started, I think they've actually done some really good stuff. Um, so that got me back on the saddle with them, um, in regards to being like a regular watcher. Um, so what we're going to get into now is Gresham versus Sabre Jr. And this, um, feud started, or not, not started, well, the first match took place at, um, ripped off in the prime of life. Um, and the way they built this up was this is their um, first encounter um, in the U.S. after facing each other in, like, England and Germany. Um, 
is that true? Was that like completely true that they never faced each other in the U.S. before? I'd have to double check, um, just because I know that Saber was in Chikara, and I know that Grisham was in Chikara under a mask. So there is the possibility that they faced off at some point um, with Grisham playing a different character. But to my recollection, no, they they never faced off before uh, in the United States, in Europe, in Germany, of course, multiple times in like tag matches, especially, um, and then also in uh, in singles. But yeah, in America, this could this is definitely their first time meeting up, especially in kind of their current uh, carnations. Especially, I know you are just starting to kind of look back at older Zack Sabre Jr. stuff from the early 2000s. And I would say even he's almost a totally different wrestler than he was, let's say, like in 2007 compared to now. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's something that um, we're probably going to talk about in regards to Zack Sabre Jr. when we're done talking about um, this particular set of matches. Um, and this um, this was built up as um, two guys having an immense respect for each other. Um and them just not not wanting to settle the score, but just kind of like um, see what they can do on um, a platform in the United States. Um, so as I mentioned, this match, the first match took off at um, ripped off in the prime of life, and this um definitely felt like the friendliest match between the two. Um, this is a term. This is like kind of like um a term that gets you know pounded to death in regards to watching Zack Sabre Jr. matches. You know, the commentary team will always pound this some term to death, but, you know, this match was probably the most, like, world of sports stylish um, out of all their encounters. Um, playful, kind of, like, exhibitionary um, grappling from them. Um, one spot in particular where, um, God, what was it? They were like laying on top of each other. Like Gresham had Zach's legs, Zach had Gresham's legs, and they like they were like kicking out, and then they both kicked out at the same time. You know, like cutesy little spots like that. So, um, in terms of how they approach each other, there wasn't any kind of um, violence that they tried to um, approach one another with until the later portion of the match. But um, what did you think of how they approached this match? Um from the beginning to set um, the early stages of this. Yeah, I mean, for this first match, I think there was a lot of really interesting stuff. I think it was smart to really have Grisham show, inform a crowd that may or may not be super aware. I think everyone knows Grisham's really good technically, but I think a lot of American fans who maybe don't watch a lot of his work in WXW or, or Fight Club Pro or, uh, I mean, God, like, those are really, I think, his big European companies, but he, you know, he's also worked in um, Big Japan and other places in, in Japan. Um, don't really think of him at the same level or caliber of a technician as Zack Sabre Jr. Because I think a lot of people put Zack Sabre Jr. on this pedestal. I've said it in comparison to Kyle O'Reilly. I think um, if it wasn't for the way that Kyle O'Reilly kind of carries himself, where people think about him as more of a jiu-jitsu MMA guy, um, I think he would be in the contention for best technical wrestler uh, for the, the kind of observer awards, right? But the reason why Zack Sabre Jr. has not won them, I think, two years in a row and is probably going to pick it up for a third year and, and go on one of these hellacious runs just like Daniel Bryan did uh, is because his gimmick is is good technical wrestler. He is good, 
but his gimmick is good technical wrestler, so meanwhile people think of him that way. I think Grisham just doesn't have a gimmick. To a lot of American fans, their exposure to, to Grisham is like so minuscule that they don't think of him as having anything. And sometimes he mixes stuff up, I think, a little bit too much. He doesn't stick to, to anything long enough. Like, I was really enjoying the kind of octopus thing he was doing with the mask and the spitting the mist and, and kind of pulling that. It's kind of, it's terrible, but it's that stereotypical kind of Japanese character, which I kind of loved him playing like a bad Japanese stereotype character, uh, you know, being that he's a black guy from America. I thought it was kind of cool. Okay, you know, maybe you can pull this off. And I, and I could see other people not getting behind it, and it's kind of why he jettisoned it. But I wish that he would find a kind of an identity and stick with it because that's what makes people not... People don't have the concept of how good of a technical wrestler he is. So that was the point of this first match to me, I think, was showing, number one, Grisham is a better technical wrestler than Zack Sabre Jr. That was, this whole match was about that. And then when it got to the end, it showed Grisham is so, so much better than Zack at being a technical wrestler that he actually was able to make him lose his cool, something that a lot of people can't do. And by the end of the match, uh, it was getting violent, and it was getting angry and heated because... Grisham brought that out of Sabre, and it took an entire match all the way to the end to actually get that to come out, which was a nice kind of table setting for uh, for what would come next. Yeah, it definitely um, set the tone. Well, that ending portion definitely set the tone for what will become a story of Zack's growing frustration when facing Jonathan Gresham. Then I think you hit the nail right on the head that it, like, Gresham was outclassing Zack, like, entirely and it's something i thought about i mean was zach's gimmick being um that he's the best technical wrestler on the planet he's the he's the technical wizard like the fact that he was able to um i guess let himself be not embarrassed but it was clear that he was a step behind gresham in this match and throughout the entire series although he was a step behind gresham so I think there was like a big amount of respect there um, for Zach. I don't think Zach really has an ego, but it was just something of um, him allowing Gresham to look like a mastermind and a wizard over um, on Zach um, Saber's expense. Um, I guess one thing that I thought of when I was watching this match is maybe they went to the violence and frustration maybe um too early maybe I'm not sure I felt like they did a good job of spacing it and it didn't like get like um I guess like um I guess super indie-ish offense wise with like head drops and stuff until the very end which is um I'm fine with but I'm not sure they I'm not sure that they needed to pull it out that early I guess like it would it would be a criticism. I would I I kind of would have saved that um entire um sequence for flesh. Um, I did like the finish though, with um I think Zach was trying to rush in, Gresham caught him in some kind of um I guess schoolboy, and then he hooked um Zach's leg behind his head in commentary um. I know Shug D was on commentary, but I forgot who was on commentary with Shug D for this match. But um, they kind of presented it as a fluke victory, but not really. And it set the table really well for, um, I guess, what would be the story of Gresham trying to prove himself 
and that particular match didn't really um I guess prove uh, I mean it proved that Gresham could hang but it didn't really prove that Gresham was definitively better it left a lot of stuff um on the table um any more thoughts you have on the match before we move on to um flesh yeah um so i i obviously i try really hard not to be this guy and this is just off of memory so i'm just gonna say it was it was a little note and the reason why i even am correcting you is just because uh it was important to me to the story and i didn't think about it so you're talking about the finish which is that uh, what he finished them off with was it was kind of a slow setting crucifix. Was so it, he has one arm. He oh, goes yeah. back over and he and he grabs the other arm with Zach face down, and then yeah. he pulls that arm back over into the crucifix. Yeah. And uh, the reason why it was important is because early in the match, Grisham goes for a crucifix and and Zach bridges to protect himself from getting the pin. Yeah, yeah, I remember that spot. Thank you for correcting me on that one. Yeah, and Grisham, when Zach does that, he playfully pats Zach Saber Jr. on the stomach when he's bridged out of the crucifix. And it was really such a subtle thing to have that then come back, that in the end of the match, after Grisham kind of, in a way, was you know mocking him, saying like, oh, hey, that was cute the way you bridged out. By the end of the match, Grisham had kicked his ass so bad that he couldn't pull that cute little trick again, and he just got pinned by the crucifix. Um, so I really, I thought that that was nice the way that came back. And so, like I said, this really, hindsight being 2020 makes this whole presentation um, kind of work. And it just sucks because I wish that someone had promoted it in a way where I knew what I was getting from these three matches. Because I watched these kind of in real time as they got posted on the service online. And... Um, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. And if they had just set it up a little bit, um, I think I would have appreciated it a lot more. Uh, and I'll save that until we're kind of talking about the overall presentation of the three matches to really kind of dig deeper into that. Yeah, that's definitely something that I'm I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about it too. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, like when I'm like I'm watching them as soon as they pretty much go up, I'm like super invested in watching these two face each other. But I didn't exactly know what this was that they were planning on doing so I guess um, and I did watch the the matches in order last night just to get um, a better full um, vision of what they were trying to accomplish but as it was happening with like the spaces out um, of, like every three weeks or so um, a match happening yeah I didn't really know what I was getting into with them um, as we said Gresham picks up the win in their friendliest encounter up until a certain point. And then this leads into their um, match at Flesh, where they were actually the opening match on the show, which I thought was not not like super interesting, but considering that they would go on to a main event, American Rana, I probably would have went with them as the main event, but it's not a big deal. Um, so what are your thoughts on... Um, on the flesh match, and I'll just kind of um, bounce off of what you have to say. So, yeah, I thought, and now that you, you know, kind of cat out of the bag here, um, the, the card placement is another thing that I find very beyond, and, and very Drew Cordero. Um, and the fact that the first match is kind of the semi-main, and that doesn't shock me. 
because that, like I said, that's very Drew Cordero to go. You know, that was Zach Sabre Jr.'s second match in the company. You know, Grisham's got this kind of bubbling up in the undercard recently, had some great matches and beyond. And it's kind of like, oh, this is an attraction match. It'll be the semi-main, but we'll have, you know, kind of our guys in the main event. And I think it was, I think that this was the show with that kind of overbloated uh, death before, or death by elbow tag team match, which is... It's funny, it's funny to say overbloated death, death by elbow tag team match because kind of all redundant. Of <laughs> yes, but it was on death by elbow versus um, Dickinson and Dijak on that um, ripped off in the prime of life. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and it's, it's kind of like, like it's three of the ace guys, and it's Chris Hero. He doesn't even have to be in a match to prove that he's ace. He's ace of wrestling at this point. So <laughs> it's kind of it reminds me of um, Kevin Steen when he when they first started Mount Rushmore, and he said, "All these guys got a title. I don't need a title. This company is my title." It's kind of like Chris Hero doesn't need any. He doesn't need any title. He doesn't need to be the ace of beyond because wrestling is his title. He's the ace of wrestling. Um, but so you got this huge main event, and they're underneath it as this attraction match. And it's kind of like, okay, you know, like I said, that's very Drew Cordero. And then to go like. And, and then, then the, the next, next thing, they're, they're open. open. And, and, and partially, obviously, that's because they're running a doubleheader in conjunction with, uh, with Evolve, and Zack Sabre Jr. is wrestling Evolve, so I don't know if, it's even, if it was even in the same building. I don't think it was. Or actually, it might have been. I'm not, um, it might have. I mean, it looked eerily similar, and not eerily similar, but it did look like they were running in um, a similar-looking building, so it might have been the exact same place. I can look. But, um, yeah. And so it was like, okay, Zach's got to get this match out of the way. He's got to wrestle first because then he's going to have time to, like, rest and get ready for his next match. Uh, and that all kind of makes sense. But, like I said, it's very beyond to go, this match co-mained or, or was the semi-main last show, and now it's opening the show. Uh, and then they essentially have what tantamount to a sprint for these guys, it, it still went probably 25 to 30 minutes, I would guess. You know the exact length on anything. Are you one of those guys? Are you um, like a matches guy? Um, no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, so I would guess it probably went 25, 25 minutes max, I would say, is where this is at. And, and that's a very, like, this is a sprint for Zack Sabre Jr. and Jonathan Grisham. And honestly, this was violent. This was heated. This was angry. There was a lot of aggression. Um, there was a little bit of kind of tomfoolery with the, you know, Indian legged cross leg smacks and stuff like that. But I could accept it with these two just because of what they're going through. Um, a lot of really great stuff here from, from uh, Grisham. And just, like I said, really solid heat-filled match that felt almost similar to the first match, but totally different. And, and felt, felt like, like the opener to a show, show which, which I thought was great, great uh, that they're going to go that far removed from having the same style of match to where the other match kind of felt like an epic encounter. This feels more like a grudge match. Uh, and from there, you know, we, we head into now we got to, which I think another thing, I think now at this point, Grisham wins this match and they're still kind of treating it like we need, there needs to be something to prove here. And I felt like this was, Slightly more, more definitive, definitive win for Grisham, Grisham. but I, I think, think the, the whole way through, they really didn't, they still didn't put Grisham over super strong here. So, so I thought it was interesting and really kind of tough. How do you have a guy win two straight matches and then still kind of feel like he didn't necessarily dominate, or he's not necessarily dominant over this other guy? Um, I came away from this one, they, like, Definitely, Definitely pleased. pleased. I thought that, that was a fantastic match. match. And, and I felt, felt like, like I was just shocked that they were able to 
really ramp it up and have a better match in such a different style. And I, I really appreciate that, that it, it did feel like their match actually is getting better. And then it's kind of building that buzz where I'm going like, oh shit, what's going to happen in this third match, you know? Yeah, what I did like about this a lot, and then as you said, it was a fantastic match, which isn't, you know, anything, you know, newsworthy because they do it, you know, every time they face each other. But what I liked about this is that there was like a clear, um, like, dickishness in them. Like, they were like, clearly like being more dickish towards each other. Like, um, I think, um, I'm, I don't, I can't remember who started it, but one of them had each other in a submission and then took the other one's hand and started, um, clapping with it. You oh, know, that was Grisham. Yeah, Gresham started it and then Zach did it back to him. So there was, um, more, um, of them being, um, jerks to each other in that regard. Um, it didn't take as long for it to get to the violent side as it took for them to get there. Um, yeah, ripped off in the prime of life, which I appreciated. Um, these two still had, you know, these underlying tensions with each other. Um, Zach is still pissed off. He's not, he's maybe not pissed off at this point, but he's definitely out to prove like, okay, you got that one on me, but this is why I'm the technical wizard. This is why I'm the man around here. This is why they wanted to get me. This is why I'm in the Cruiserweight Classic. It definitely had that kind of tone to it. Um, I did enjoy the arm work or like the targeting of the arm that both of the, both, both of these guys were doing. Um, yeah, a big part of that too for me. And I think it, now that I kind of think about it is that it was more strike based arms attacks from both of them, Yeah, which is, is interesting and awesome to see. But I think part of what made, part of what made it feel, like I said, that even though Grisham won two in a row that he wasn't dominant was that. Uh, Grisham started targeting the arm first, but the way Zach was using other like kicks more than Grisham did, kind of the way Grisham didn't seem to have that same striking game. He was throwing a lot kind of weaker looking forearms to attack Saber's arm, and Saber was selling his arm like it was a lot worse off than Grisham's the whole way through. But just some of those sick kicks and strikes from Zach really made it look like. Like, Grisham got out of here by the skin of his teeth because one of those nasty strikes from Saber at some point was just going to take him out completely um, because his strikes just looked like he had that puncher's chance throughout the whole match where Grisham looked like he was really needing to wear him down to get to the point where they finally won. So I thought that was definitely a very interesting play. What's, what's funny about that is that um, on commentary, again, this is something that Chuck D was doing, is that he kept like pointing out in commentary that every like every time he was on that he thought Gresham had the advantage as a striker, which you know um is fine. You want to build a story up of Gresham, well, well um, like has that over Zach even if he's not better technically than him. But you know just watching the match play out, I always thought that like Zach's like striking always came across better than Gresham's. Like, um, do you, would you agree with that? Would you, would you agree? No, one hundred percent. And I think. May, I didn't pick up exactly what Shug D said, but I I heard it more like uh, Grisham was lucky for his height disadvantage that that was giving him that was throwing off Saber's leverage advantage because he had to throw European uppercuts lower. But and then like I said, it kind of worked into it where Saber has been throwing kicks that just looked so much stiffer while while Grisham kept with the kind of forearms and stuff. So I think I don't know. I definitely saw the same thing. I saw Saber looked like his striking game was more solid. I thought Grisham sold 
saber striking like it was deadly, and at any moment he was going to just be done for and get KO'd by a strike from his saber. So I definitely didn't see. I definitely didn't see it if Shug D was putting it over that, that Grisham was the stronger striker here because that's not that wasn't the story I saw at all in the match. All right. Um, and I do want to go back to the point that you made about this being an opening match. Um, this is like I'm not sure would it be the second, but this like is like the second opening match to a WWN show that Saber's been on where what he's doing or the match he's in feels like the main event of the show. Um, the other match would be his match versus Hero at Mercury Rising from WrestleMania weekend where they were the opener. But I think it's really neat how Zach can go like 20, 25 minutes in an opening match, like tear down the house, have it feel epic, like have it feel like a main event, but it doesn't feel like they killed the rest of the show. So that's just something interesting that, um, Zach has been able to do this year that maybe um, a lot of people aren't really um, looking at in terms of it being a skill. Um, Go ahead. (laughs) Did I make noise right now? Yeah. (laughs) Jeez. I was like opening my mouth really wide and I didn't realize that anything came out there. I'm sorry. Um, And I was just going to let it go. But being that I'm a PWG regular and he's our champion out here, um, I think that while you say that that's a Skill, um, I I get concerned with his main events. He didn't. He obviously didn't disappoint with Kyle O'Reilly, but Kyle O'Reilly is probably one of my favorite wrestlers on the planet. Um, I don't, I can't put him in that you know Flair Fez or most outstanding category for the Observer Awards just because he, his quantity is so low this year. Unfortunately, he hasn't wrestled a lot, but when he does, I feel like he knocks it out of the park and and has that style that fits this. But I think that I worry that Saber not only um, can have an opening 20-minute match that you know doesn't feel like it kills the rest of the card, I worry that realistically Sabre doesn't have a main event-style match. Um, now, I say that kind of trepidatiously because I know that he does, and I have experienced that he does, especially in WXW, but I worry if he's going to be able to, or if he ever will, bring that same thing to America. Um, it, it, I've, I've obviously said many times, I, I'm pretty sure you've heard me, and I also say many times, I, I said, or I used to say, and I always reference things that I've said before, and it's a bad habit that I need to cut out in general. Um, but, I've said many times that I think Saber was the most interesting in NOAA and, and in the UK, and since he's coming to America, he's really kind of lost a lot of that the, the fire that I thought that he showed. Um, and I worry if it's coming. And in the second match, he showed something. But like you said, at the same time, it didn't feel like a main event. And that's something that I think I've, I've mentioned a couple times before as well. But I think that people lose in their um, kind of appreciation of wrestling. And something we've lost in general in the kind of Meltzer star rating world where everything is about is like what this match, what's the star rating of this match, and not so much kind of um, did what this does ma- this match feel like. Right, did this know? match fill its role on the card, its placement? Did it feel like it was um, an opener, like that kind of thing? Did it feel yeah. like it? Yeah. And, and I worry that Sabre doesn't have I worked a main event style to him, and that's why he's able to get away with having 
kind of a 20, 25-minute epic encounter here with, with Grisham that definitely felt like a brawl and felt, like I said, the closest thing to a sprint that you're going to see it at 25 minutes with a lot of striking and kicking. But I don't know if he can deliver what feels like an epic main event of a show. Um, you know, and, and that's just the only thing when you're talking about that. I just I worry that what you're saying is a strength of his may actually be a weakness of his, and, and I don't know. Oh, you know, if he's gonna, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like I'm, I wouldn't like argue with you on that because I mean I totally see where you're coming from in regards of if you put Zach in the main event, if it's going to be any different than if he's working an opener, I totally understand um, that line of thinking. Um, it's just something that, you know, I enjoy where if a guy is going to be, you know, the opener on a show, I mean, yeah, some people have an idea of what an opener in wrestling should be. You should get the crowd into it. Yada, 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 not kill everything else in the show. You know, I get that. Some people just want their opener to be, um, quick, painless, get out the way. And so they can get to the um, other stuff on the show, on the show. Um, while I'm, you know, a fan of that in some aspects, I do enjoy when a guy or when two guys go out there and have an opener that feels like it's the biggest thing on the show. And it doesn't like leave um me completely filled up. Like after I watched the hero match from Mercury Rising, like it didn't kill the rest of that show for me. So again, while I see what you're coming from there, I think not killing the show and still having a 25 minute match is something that not a lot of guys realistically could do. So, um, that's it there. Um, I guess now we can go on to, um, American Rana and ironically enough, this is a Zack Sabre Jr. main event. And originally this wasn't going to be the main event. The main event was going to be, um, Donovan Dijak versus Chris Dickinson versus JT Dunn, um, in a triple threat match to determine the ace of beyond. But Gresham versus Zach in a two out of three falls match, um, took their spot and they got bumped to the fifth match on the show. Um, do you have like any strong thoughts on, um, Gresham versus Zach being turned into the main event program of Beyond's biggest show of the year? I think it was the right choice. I honestly do, and me and you talked about this in the in the in the Slack chat, which it feels weird to even bring up in public because it's just a dumb <laughs> thing. Um, but for me, the archetype of a main event three way kind of was set with that ECW one. That, like I said, we talked about this, and the problem with Dijak, Dickinson, and Dunn is that they don't, none of them fit any different role. And I just can't buy that as a main event. The point of a multi-man match like that, and a three-way match, and it's not just a singles match, is that you got to have interesting characters who fit totally different paradigms, I think, for it to work as a money main event program. You can have plenty of good three-ways, four-ways, five-ways, six... You can have a six-way title, PWS. Um, but, like... The only way that it can be a money thing is if you've got three people with really three totally different characters, outlooks on wrestling, goals, like what they want out of the whole thing. And it's kind of, it makes me think like, 
that that mania three way with with Brian Orton and Batista, where like it worked for what it was because Daniel Bryan was so over. But honestly, it was like the only reason why it worked is because it essentially became a handicap match where Batista and Orton were on the same team, and Daniel Bryan is this uber over un, or uber underdog. He's over with the fans, but he's an underdog in storyline. Um, and that's why that works. But I think just a straight-up three-way where you got two guys who are too much the same isn't going to work for me. And then you got a three-way where all three guys are the same. I can't think of, realistically, a big difference. I mean, obviously, their size and their wrestling style is totally different. But their characters and their motivation, what's the difference between Dijak, Dickinson, and JT Dunn? They're all the same kind of cocky prick um, who thinks that they're better than everybody else, and essentially they just want to prove it. And I'm sorry, but like that doesn't bring me into a three-way. I want a three-way where I got some, some juiciness to it, and I got like a real story where I'm invested in what it means if each guy wins. And in that, in that match, it doesn't mean anything. If one guy wins, it just means that he's the best guy. And if the other guy wins, it just means he's the best guy. But there's nothing deeper than that. So switching this into the main event was such a smart idea because they built up an epic storyline between the two of them in these two matches before this to where this this really felt like the ace of beyond and not even like it was a battle of who's going to be the ace of beyond between these two, but it was Grisham proving that he is the ace of beyond. Like, Zach didn't have anything to win. Uh, Grisham just had everything to lose here. And I felt like that definitely made it super exciting, super heated, and it felt like it was important and it should have been the main event of the biggest show of the year. Um, so that was kind of my long-winded way of answering that, yeah, I think it was smart to put this as the main event, especially because that three-way didn't deliver. Oh, yeah, I fucking despise that match. But I'm glad we're not do- I'm doing a whole um, American round of review. Um, you mentioned something um, in your... Um, little spiel there about it feeling like Gresham coming out of this show was the ace of beyond and I mean I'm glad you mentioned that because I felt that way too after watching this match like it felt like the crowning of Jonathan Gresham like it felt like this entire run in 2016 that he's going on facing Hero facing JT Dunn having these um Zack Sabre Jr. matches it felt like this was the crowning of Jonathan Gresham as a top guy in this company. Um, we can get into the match itself goes because, um, I'm not sure if I like this match than you. I know, I, I know I probably gave it a higher rating than you'd give it. Um, but they came out of the box here. Um, you mentioned this earlier where you mentioned this at some point that you didn't really like the bravado of Zach that he was showing in the pre-match, like walking up to, um, Gresham and bumping him. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, I just felt like he lost two straight falls to this guy. And Zach has this cocky, cool attitude. I I saw it when, at, I think it was either Mercury Rising or Evolve 59, when uh, heroes eventually die, are in the ring, and Chris Hero is essentially telling him, you die tomorrow or you die this afternoon in their match. Um, he's going to kick his ass, but that he needs to get out of his ring because, you know, it's their time to wrestle. And Zach didn't give a fuck, essentially told Hero to fuck off, and he did leave because his match was over and he was beat up. But as he was walking by, I noticed that he shoulder-bumped Tommy End. And uh, 
to me, I was always kind of like, well, Tommy is a scary motherfucker. He's a legit kickboxer, and he's got a big bad fucking, you know, his big bad bully best friend trainer in the ring with him. And that's Zack Sabre Jr.'s character. He's cocky to the point of almost ridiculousness. That, what the fuck are you thinking, dude? Like, you could have just left the ring. You didn't need to shoulder check him. But he did. He just had to show him. And that's the moment where I go, okay, yeah, he's super cocky because he's confident in himself. And he knows that he could kick these guys' asses if it came down to it. But with Grisham here, he's already been proven that he can't. He's lost twice to him. So the idea that he's then kind of manning up and showing this, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe I take it the wrong way, but I feel like it's this cocksuredness from Sabre that shouldn't be there. Maybe it's false bravado, and I should pick up on the subtleties there, and that he's just trying to psych Grisham out by acting like he's, you know, he's ready for him. But realistically, to me there, I just felt like, why would he be so confident coming into a match where he's too down? Obviously... You know, as someone who has played sports before, I know that you don't want to go into any sporting competition assuming you're going to lose, but you also don't need to so aggressively kind of go the other person into, uh, like, into essentially firing up and possibly getting pissed off at you and having their kind of adrenaline going and they're going to they're going to take it to you in a more personal way now, which is what ends up happening in the match. Um, I don't know if you want to get into the match or if you want to get into just kind of parsing out my my ideas there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do have a response to that because I don't... Like, I see where you're coming from, but I don't, like, wholly agree with it. I mean, I think the thing with Gresham... Well, well the way Zach approached Gresham... And this goes back to what we talked about before with how this was pre- presented as... Even though Gresham has these two wins over Zach, they didn't feel definitive. So I think Zach, even though he's lost twice, still has confidence that, yeah, I can get rid of this motherfucker because he didn't really, you know, fully get me those two times. Even though he did tap out of flesh, you know, it didn't really feel like Gresham put Zach away. Like, where Gresham was, he's the better man, he's the better wrestler, Zach needs to pick another battle with someone else. It still felt like Zach was still the man in charge. And that's the way commentary still tried to present it, as Gresham still has something left to prove by knocking off Zach, who has all of this buzz and hype surrounding him with everything that Zach has going for him. While Zach was, all he has to do is avenge his um, couple of losses. So I understand why Zach was cocky, but I do see why it can come off as annoying, come off as annoying at times, and. That will be something that we talk about more when it comes to Zack Sabre Jr.'s um, persona as a whole. Because I think understanding that false sense of bravado that he has, where he has to one-up somebody, where he has to be better, where he has to show off what he can do, where he has to show off that he's a better man, that he's a better grappler, that he's a better technician, you know, is something that Zack always has in the back of his mind. And whether that part of his personality shows up or not depends on whether or not someone gets him to that breaking point um obviously a chris hero got him to that breaking point um and we'll talk about with um this match here gresham got him to that breaking point like they start off this match and it's like really really intense um um tie up and they're just rolling on the mat and this is the first time where they're um, grappling with each other. I felt like there's like some kind of like hatred in it. Like even as something as simple as a tie-up. Like there's just some kind of venom 
in the way that they're doing it. And I think the way they get across the emotion that Zack is feeling, like not just the strikes and all that, but they are um, grappling with each other so hard that they wind up going outside of the ring. And they like, it's not crowd brawling, but they're like fighting outside. Like, which is something that you would not expect from either guy and knowing how they've faced each other before. That these two were going to chop each other, inform each other on the outside of the ring, and do nasty things, and like stomp on the hands on the apron. Like, we've seen him do that before. But it was the entire setup of having to go outside of the ring first, because they're just so aggressive with each other, that like the ring just couldn't hold them. Do you have anything to add yeah, there? And, no, no, yeah, and, and I, I love that you said that, because it's exactly... What I picked up on with their crowd brawling was just that, that they did it. Okay, so if anyone listens to This Week in Wrestling, you've heard me on my screen, and I'm going to go off on it even more in the next episode that will be coming out. I don't even know when this podcast is coming out, but go listen to my G1 coverage. And essentially, I'm super fucking annoyed that every fucking match has to have around the ring brawling. And then they even do the, like, every now and then they go all the way out into the crowd, and then it's, oh, now it's serious. So it's like... <laughs> I always hate when you have to, like, put a gimmick on top of a gimmick, and brawling around the ring is a gimmick. And then when you have to gimmick on top of it where you go, okay, well, you know, this isn't just 10,000 light tubes, this is also flaming light tubes, you know? And that's where you're starting to get to that overkill. So when you have to go, like, yeah, now we're actually all the way in the rampway going back to the, the locker room, so now we're actually fighting. But meanwhile, when we were fighting just around the ring area, that was just, you know, we have to do that. And it's like, no, you fucking don't. This is all fake. All you have to do is what makes this match work. And what they did here with their around-the-ring brawling, like you said, was so perfect because they didn't change the way that they fought because of the set. They brawled so intensely. They were going at each other so hard that they fell out of the ring and they continued to use the same kind of strikes but with a little bit more you know, anger and viciousness behind it outside of the ring. So they were still having the same match, but on the floor, and it really just works because it's like, just because you're on the floor brawling doesn't mean now you're a floor, a floor brawl. You know, you're not Makabe just because you're fighting a guy on the floor. You're still Zack Sabre Jr. and Jonathan Gresham. You're just having your fight on the floor. And I thought that they did that flawlessly in this match, and I'm really happy that you brought that up because it was so perfect, and you're so right. Like, that's what, like, the name of the show, Psychology is Dead. That's what psychology is. You are who you are, and you wrestle the way that you wrestle. I mean, you fight the way that you fight, and these two really understood that. And throughout it, they kind of kept that narrative of, we are two guys who are now upset, essentially. We started out friendly, and this was going to be, who's the better man? And now it's turning into... I think this guy is actually disrespecting me. I think this guy actually thinks he's better than me. And it's Grisham saying, no, you know what? I've had enough of everyone saying that this guy is the fucking best in the world because I was always the best in the world and they just didn't know it. Because I think that's why Zach Sabre Jr. shows Grisham this respect because Grisham was doing this shit in Germany forever. And Zach Sabre Jr. wasn't necessarily considered like a big deal in UK and in the rest of America while Grisham kind of was, I mean, I'm not to say that they're bigger stars, but I think at times Grisham was seen as a bigger star just for the pure fact that he was being flown in. 
It's kind of just like Sabre coming into America now where people think like, oh, Sabre's more important because this company paid to bring him here, so he must be a big deal. And it was kind of the same thing for Gresham. So I think that's why Zach Sabre Jr. gives him that respect because he was a big deal in Europe when he used to come over there more often. Um, so yeah, I just... I guess that was my thoughts on the crowd brawling. I thought it was fucking amazing. I thought they did such a good job there of really making it work and fit their characters. Yeah, I mean, like... And it's just something that I wish like more people like would do. Like I can't think of any other example of where two guys like they didn't turn into complete like fucking bruiser Brody like in all Japan in the eighties or fucking world class or wherever he is, just like going into the crowd and that was it. Like it was okay, we wound up here. I'm still gonna fucking hit you, but we're gonna we're gonna wind up back in the ring eventually because that's not what we do. We don't stay out in the ring. We don't hit each other with weapons. We don't go overboard. We're not going all the way to the back or through the doors or all the way back to the merch table. We're going to stay right here by this ring. And then I'm going to stop on your fucking hand. And then we're going to get back to work. Like, there was no other bullshit that I needed to do. And I just, like, it was, like, straight to the point crowd brawling. And I appreciated that a lot because I just can't think of anywhere else or anyone else that did it or that can do it in that way. Um... The first fall here was interesting to me because usually I'm not a pin, I'm not, not a fan of um, double pin finishes, especially because they're usually used as like a fuck finish um, to set up something else. Um, to set up like, like usually the double um, double pin is set up for another match, and it's just like a scapegoat to get out of having someone lose clean. So you know, I'm I'm not really usually a fan of it. But the way they used it here, I thought it was just, um, it tied into the story of Gresham getting fluke victories over Zack Sabre Jr. Where, I mean, Zack Sabre Jr. is the one that was going for the pin, and then Gresham just kind of, um, not got lucky, but he did something smart enough where both of their shoulders wound up being down. And then both of their faces were just so goddamn shocked like Zack Sabre Jr. couldn't believe that he wound up getting pinned like when he's the one that um, wound up doing what was is that that's not the European clutch is it um no I've I've heard heard it it, like the reverse uh, rolling clutch they call it um the European clutch what people are calling the European clutch is the uh the stingray attachment which is the I don't even know how to describe it, but he has both hands clasped, and then when the guy tries to kick out, essentially he um, grabs their legs with his legs. Oh, and then yeah, okay, 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 yeah, 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 okay, yeah, I definitely yeah. that now. That's what he used to beat um, Shibata. Yes, and, um, and he, what this was, was it's kind of like a reverse O'Connor roll, and I've heard people call it um, like a reverse roll, a reverse Japanese cradle roll, I've heard, a lot of different names for it. But it's essentially like a um, like an O'Connor roll, but the other way. And uh, and Grisham was able to pull him over so that his shoulders were down as well. Yeah. So, which is like interesting. Like the fact that they used this as the first fall in a two or three falls match, I just thought was super innovative because I just I don't think I've ever seen that before. I mean, if you could point to another instance where they did something like a double pin, like usually in two or three falls matches we could get, like, some, like, generic heel tropes, like, um, 
I guess a famous one would be getting disqualified on purpose so the face gets the first fall and then the heel like immediately picks up the second fall because he got disqualified. Right. Like so it's like a generic like trope when it comes to two or three falls matches. I thought they did something like super fresh and innovative um with this on double pain. How did you feel about it? Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, know how, how this happened, happened but I wasn't aware that it was supposed to be a two out of three falls match. Really? <laughs> yeah. So when that happened, um, I was kind of like, oh, fuck. I was like, are they pulling like kind of a fuck finish? And it didn't make any sense because it's like, Zach's already lost him twice. Why would they? Why would they do the, why would they, why would they do the fuck finish now? Yeah, it was kind of like, why would you set up the fuck finish as the last match? Um, and then the other thing, too, is that a lot of times you get a, a finish like this and then a restart, and it's five minutes, you know, and then, then, then it's over. Um, so I was kind of like, I was really, really, like, happy with the fact that it wasn't a fuck finish, that it was the match was still going, and that it, the match kept going afterwards, which I thought... I'll get into kind of a little bit now when I say the overall presentation. I think this made perfect sense for the overall presentation because all three matches were kind of like a two out of three falls match. If you look at the psychology of the way that they're put together. The first fall was them feeling each other out and uh, Gresham gets the better of him and pulls off kind of a fluky roll up to him. You know, the second fall was kind of the all-out brawl. We're angry. We're just fighting this and that. Um, and then we go into Grisham gets the submission there. What's interesting is if it was just a regular two out of three falls match, then the match is over there, right? But because it's actually like a best of three series, we're having the matches anyways kind of thing. Uh, they then get to go into the third fall, which doing this double pin was perfect because Essentially, it would fuck up the flow of the whole thing if they had to do two different pins. Yeah. Uh, because it really, like I said, it really feels like a, a two out of three falls match that they just happened to say we're going to go to all three falls, even though Grisham technically already won. Um, and so having just the one pin that felt kind of like a tie pin that could be thrown out the window and then going into the main event really made the last match feel like it was just the third, like all together it was just the third fall of a match, which I thought was perfect. And then so then they essentially go into sudden death. It's really just a regular match. And... And, and I, I thought, thought from there, they really delivered with unique and interesting, interesting cool stuff. stuff. So I thought, I thought the, the double pin was, was perfect, honestly. And I think it really, it helps with the overall presentation. presentation. And it's, I wouldn't, it was a cool wrinkle. It worked out really well. I kind of can't believe that they made it work as well as they did. So much so that like, if it was my choice, I wouldn't have made this last match two out of three falls. Because coming up with that idea just feels so one in a million. So right. I, I, I would assume that someone had the idea before they decided to do the two out of three fall stick because it's such a good idea, you know? Yeah, like, and as I said, like, I don't, I can't think of anywhere else where I've seen that. Like, and the, and the beauty of how the double pin happened is that, like, after the initial confusion of it, they went right back at each other with the same intensity level that they were going at before. And this is where the nastiness really shines through more than any of their encounters before. Um, and this is where, like, the part of the match where I thought Zack Sabre Jr. was, like, a next-level tier performer. And I love Jonathan Gresham to death. And I thought Gresham was excellent throughout the entire series. He was excellent in this match. But I thought Zack was so damn good at 
working over Gresham's neck. Like, he was just fucking stomping on him. He was doing that thing where he just um, puts his ankles around Gresham's neck and then twists twist himself. Um, it, that had, yeah, like, he usually does, does that with a hammerlock. I've, I've never, never seen him do it on the head, head like that. that. I thought it was, it was so, so cool. cool. I've, I've only ever seen, seen him do it with, like, a hammerlock. Yeah, it was, like, really nasty. Like, you could, like, look at him. He has, like, this... Like, maybe Regal, like, is too far. But he had, like, this nasty, like, scowl on his face. Like, he is really out to maim this dude. He is so fucking mad. He is so frustrated that he is, like, down to Jonathan Gresham. That he's just, like, stomping on him. And this is where we go to the part of Zack losing his cool. And Zack loses his cool and falls apart at the seams maybe more than I've ever seen him fall apart. And I guess, like, the other part of why Zack was so good here is his selling of the leg. And a, a criticism of Zack has been that he isn't, no, a really expressive seller or that he really isn't good at selling. And, I mean, I dare anybody to watch this match and then come and then come back and say that Zack Sabre Jr. isn't good at selling because this was one of the best performances I've seen all year and maybe the best performance of Zack's life and how he sold that and how he sold his knee. I mean, he did the thing like we just talked about of him twisting the neck and the second time he did it, he like, like crumbled immediately after because his knee has been in so, was in so much pain because of Gresham's um work on it. But um, what did you think of the um targeting work? Um, in this part, in this half, with Zach going after Gresham's neck, and Gresham going after um Zach's leg. I, I honestly, I loved it. I mean, I, I, I don't want this to be the like Zack Saber Junior love hour, but like, yeah, the selling of the leg was on point the whole way through, and Gresham brought viciousness. The part about it that I think really made it work also is that they were vicious once again in a totally different way than the the second match. The second match was the kind of angry brawling part, but this match really didn't feel brawly at all. There was some striking here and there, but it felt more precision striking and they were bringing, like you said, with the neck attack, with kind of nasty looking ankle locks from Gresham. Um, there was one particular kick from from his back. He kind of just does a double kind of push and kick at Zach's knee that, that puts him out for quite a while. I mean, Zach can barely even stand up afterwards. Um, and it was like minimal striking and a lot of intricate, cool, different holds that were looking not just finesse, but brutal. And that's something that's really tough to do. And Grisham and Zach both brought it here in spades, which was have a technical match that felt like it had a lot of anger. And, and they did a great job here with, um, with everything, and I don't, I don't know if you want to get into the, the finish, but I thought the finish was another part that, that shines through with a similar story to, to, to the match with Hero over WrestleMania weekend, which was that, Zach lost his cool, like you said, and he he fell apart, and when he does, he sometimes falls apart and starts trying to kind of, play a different game than than what he's best at, and that's where, he loses. And that's what happened here. And it's something, the way Sabre does that really helps keep him strong. And it's kind of genius 
that um, that Saber's really able to take any losses he wants. He, Saber could probably lose every match because he puts this thought into the way that the match is put together to where at the end of it, even though he lost here and it puts over Gresham super strong and he loses all three matches, he doesn't really lose any heat off of that because by the end of this match, it felt like Grisham's got him in the figure four. He's cranking away at it. And and Zach is swiping at him and trying to fire him up and smacking the shit out of him. And you can just tell that what Zach is doing is he's saying, like, I don't want to lose like this. You've got me in this figure four. It's fucking tight. I'm ready to tap out. But what he's saying is, come on. Like, let's go at it. Let's fucking you know, stand up. Let me out of this hold. Let's stand up and let's just fucking bang. And he's kind of calling him out to throw strikes. And meanwhile, Grisham is not... He's like, no, no, falling no. For his... I got you now. You're yeah, not going like, anywhere. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to win this fucking match. Like, you're not going to trick me. And that's when Zach has to give up. Because he... Daniel Bryan says, escapism. That's Zach's game. He knows how to get out of every hold. He knows how to trick. He's the Houdini of wrestling. Well, in this moment, he was so caught up in, like, fuck this fucker. I just want to punch. I just want to smack. I just want to bite him. I want to gouge at his eyes. And he's not even thinking, going, how am I going to get out of this hole? He gets so caught up in his rage and his anger that he forgets to wrestle. And he's just trying to fight. And that's when he loses the match. And I just, it's beautiful because, like I said, it protects him. Because at the end of the match, now all he has to say or all you have to do is go, yeah, Grisham got him. But, you know, if he had just stepped back and thought about it, he could have got out of that figure four. You know, he could have reversed it. He could have done this. He could have done that. He just he got caught up in the moment, and and it's a beautiful thing because it, it makes it so he can be giving, and he can use what equity he now has built up, and that's number one. So everyone take a shot. Um, every bit of equity that that's number two that he's built up, he can give to other people because he still keeps himself protected in the end, and not in that shitty kind of "Am I going over, brother? I got to stay protected" way, but in a real <laughs> using your brain to make sure that at the end of the match, everyone kind of goes, yeah, Grisham was the better man. Yeah, Grisham's got his number, but, you know, what if? I still think Zach, you know, even though Grisham lost, I still think Zach is better. And, like, yeah, sure, Grisham beat Zach, but I don't think Grisham could beat Hero, and Zach could beat Hero. You know, and that's that's the thing that really kind of is amazing about Zach Sabre Jr. at this point is he gets his character, he gets his story, and he knows how to, knows how to keep himself strong while making other people, which is a... Which is a real fucking gift in wrestling because a lot of guys can't do that. Um, but I think I just—I don't even remember what your question was. I just started going off. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Like I enjoyed every bit of that. And you mentioned something like I don't know why this word triggered me, but you mentioned gouging at the eyes. We forgot to mention that when they were outside brawling, Zach like was like going at Gresham's eyes. Like <laughs> he like yeah. Zach is so pissed off that he actually went for Gresham's eyes. Um, and another another thing, um, the first time Gresham put on the figure four, like you mentioned Zach like doing like the swipes and slaps trying to get Gresham off. The first time Gresham put on the figure four, Zach slapped the shit out of him, and then Gresham let it go immediately. So going back to the figure four at the finish, was Zach trying to do the exact same thing that he was doing earlier to get out, which was successful, and then Gresham holding on. Again, I just thought it was a thing of beauty. Um I, I didn't even think about that. You're so right. Yeah, um, so I guess we can 
turn this into what we thought of like overall presentation wise we can rank the matches um i'm not sure if you kept stars for any of these but i'd be interested in hearing like how you um rated these matches but um first overall presentation i thought this this was like a prime example of escalation in wrestling where it felt like like as things went on i was watching something that got more and more intense and more and more special and i don't think a lot of wrestling um now really does feel that way in terms of doing a series of matches when they faced each other when they faced each other from like the end of june and then their last match was you know the end of july you know that's only a few weeks in between their matches but somehow they managed to make them feel like they didn't rush these matches like it didn't feel rushed it felt like th- like enough time had passed to let the feud um kind of reach a boiling point even if it wasn't like promos and videos and whatever kind of bullshit it was a story that they told in the ring that had the escalation feel like none other in like none other in wrestling like I'd put this as a feud, as a feud of the year contender. I mean, obviously for the end ring quality, but for the fact that they managed to make it and tell this entire story with only the end ring. I mean, I thought um, I think it's something that people should probably um, give a lot of credit to. I don't disagree with you necessarily, <laughs> but um, I still do think what if. And they did the best that they could with what they had, obviously. But I just think, what if they had more time? What if they had built this up more? You know, I really think that they could have had a lot more to it. And it did, it worked. And like I said, they did the best that they could, but it felt rushed for me. I would have liked more build, and I would have liked knowing what I'm going into. Um, When I said the overall presentation, when you go back and you watch these matches, it feels, like I said, one big two out of three falls match where they continue to go all the way through. Um, It kind of weirdly reminds me of, I think it was a um, three stages of hell match with... um, like Triple H and Mankind, I'm going to say, or it may have been Jericho and Triple H, but I know it was Triple H, and I know it was the Three Stages of Hell, and essentially it might have even been Stone Cold. I don't know my WWE history that well. Uh, but Triple H said, I'm going to beat you two, two straight falls, and then I'm still going to go into the third fall, just because I want to kick your ass more, essentially, is what he said. And that's kind of the idea of me, uh, to me of this. It was like it was a two out of three falls match where... Grisham won the first two falls and said, fuck it, we're doing the third anyways, uh, because I just want to prove that I can beat you three straight uh, just for myself. And when you watch it with that in mind, it's a great two out of three falls match. It's fucking phenomenal. But they never once really hyped it to be that way. And I think that if they had, if they had said, on the first match, they said, these guys are going to face each other three times you know, to prove who's the best. They're not just going to have this one match. And I know that that's not the way wrestling is presented because then people think, oh, you know, no one's going to care. I think these two guys had amazing matches here where if I had known what I was getting into when I watched the first match, I might have appreciated it more. 
Um, if I had known, well, go ahead. I have a question for like in response to that though. Um, even if like they didn't like hype it as much as they probably could, don't you think that the level of investment that those two got out of a few that was like so, I guess, yeah, rushed that like all the matches happened within a month time within a month's time that they managed to milk it that way and get that much emotion and intensity and make it feel special um don't you think that's a testament to how good both guys are in terms of being um like purely in-ring storytellers yeah no 100% and that's what I said they they got the most out of this that they could and that is something for them to be applauded and on the other side of it, Drew Cordero, as much as you could say, why didn't he take his time? We don't fucking know. If I'm perfectly honest, neither one of us know. We used to get you know scoops, but a certain person left the Slack chat, so we don't get our scoops anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, but we don't know what's going on backstage, you know. So so for us, like, I could see a world. I could see a situation where I give credit to Drew Cordero because what happened here was Zack Sabre Jr. told all the indie companies in the world, hey, listen, WWE is pretty interested. They're thinking about offering me a contract. You've got me until this date for sure. Um, I'll take whatever you can get me. And Drew Cordero said, fuck it. If we've only got him for another month, we're going to do this epic story where we put Jonathan Grisham over as the man because we know they have good uh, chemistry because they've wrestled a bunch of times before. And we're going to make Jonathan Grisham the fucking king of beyond in these three matches. And like I said, that feels like a very Drew Cordero thing to just go, fuck it, we're going to rush this storyline, but we're going to make it work because we can, and I want to see it because I'm a huge mark and I just love wrestling. Right? And if that is what happened, I applaud him because what he did was he put together a super rushed, like you, like you already said, feud of the year candidate that he was able to pull off within a month. That's saying something. That's saying something to the fact that he believed in these guys, that he knew what he could do, and he just went for it. And then the fact that they just followed through and executed, I have to applaud that. Um, they got the most out of it that they could. But I still question. I just go, what if? What if they had had a couple months? What if they had planned this better? What if, you know, this could have been the kind of feud that we talk about for years about how good it was, how good it really was. You know, and it sucks because Beyond is phenomenal. Me and you, big fans. I was somewhat jealous when uh, when you and Sam were talking about Beyond on the on the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast. I was like, I can't believe these fuckers didn't even care to invite me for the conversation because I've been a huge Beyond fan for a long time. But um, you know, I would have never been able to do like what you guys are talking about and getting into everything. So it's like it's not a big deal. But I was very like I'm a hardcore Beyond fan. I love the thing, and I just feel like no one fucking watches it. There's so many people who just don't pay attention. So this could have been a feud where you go, hey, you know what, you have to check out this feud. This company put this thing together, it's amazing. And it's still three great matches, but I don't necessarily know if it's going to be able to transcend and become like a breakout thing because it was so rushed. I think that's a deeper discussion that could probably be had in regards to what classics are there and like when we like when we talk about indie wrestling now like the classic view that everyone points to, everyone knows it because it's being retold in WWE, is Steen versus Generico, Owens versus Zane. And that's like a fucking 10-year, like, culmination of things. 
So, like, that's the example that people will always point to as far as, like, indie wrestling goes, is, like, storytelling and having a feud that transcends. But, like, I can't think of many that have, like, ever reached that level of acclaim or adulation. And I'm not sure, like, like when we'll ever get that feud. And, like, if a feud ever deserved that, it would be this one. I mean, but, yeah, because it happened all in a month's time... And it happened in Beyond, where even though, as they like to say, they're the most interactive wrestling company on the planet, you know, even though they have that going for them, even though they have a, like, very good subscription-based platform going for them, a lot of people aren't going to see this. And it is a shame, because if I recommend anybody anything, anything from this year to watch, it'd be to watch these matches in order. Like, trust me, you're watching something special. Like, I'll stick my neck out for these matches any day of the week. Because watching these unfold, you are watching something truly special between guys that are just, like, complete masters of what they want to do in a wrestling ring. And, you know, yeah, it, it is a what if. Like, what if, like, like, it is what if, like, what if they got more space and time to build it and do more things. But, you know... What if more people were paying attention? What if it happened on a bigger platform? What would people be seeing in this? In a feud that didn't have any talking, didn't have any outlandish storylines, it was just something that two guys were able to make unfold beautifully in a wrestling ring, just like through body language, um, emotion, and the way they put their selves on the line in terms of how they present themselves. Um... How would you rank the matches in order, and like, in your enjoyment, and maybe um even add star ratings to them? Um. So, I don't know exactly the star rating, but the order of enjoyment increased as they went. So, this is the thing. I I like to watch matches at least twice before I give them a star rating. I talk about it. It's just the way I am. I'm not Mr. Hot Take. It's just not my thing. But um, these matches, like I said, I can't, I can't decide just how good they are. And it does come down to the beyond, or the yeah, the beyond kind of presentation. The second match, the presentation really kind of ruined, not ruined it, but hurt it for me. Right. Just because of the building that they were in and. It's another thing where I think I hate when people try to kind of hold on to their to something that's just not there. And there was this weird disconnect between the fans and the bleachers and the fans around the ring that made the whole that whole flesh show really come across super awkward for me watching it. And it just kind of just kind of I don't know. It made me start picking apart just beyond and how Drew is kind of he's trying to hold on to that old thing where they just filmed the show in front of the wrestlers and they would all be crowded around the ring and there was so many great matches during those studio taping days but at the same time I'm always kind of like ah just let it you know let it be what it is and don't try to like force it and having those few fans that were like crowded around the ring really kind of took me out of it in some ways right um, and like I said that's just about the beyond production not the match itself um, then there's also you know even the other stuff that's kind of there's some commentary. I mean, I can't believe that the third... I don't know who the commentary was, but on the third match, the commentary was, like, the worst commentary of all three matches, and I just... 
I couldn't understand why Drew wouldn't have made sure that he was on commentary with like someone good on the third match, especially like after having Shook D on commentary for the other matches, and he's honestly, I think, one of the better wrestler commentators that they have in Beyond. He did. Shook D did, did commentate the third match too. Oh, he did he? I didn't. Yeah, and he was on um, whatever the fucking Corbis dude is. Oh, it was Derek Corbis, yeah. Yeah, like, but Shug D is, like, legitimately, like, really good as a commentator. And, like, I think there was a reason that he was put in that position because he did a really good job calling that first match. Yeah, I think that he should have definitely been calling all three matches, and I think that Drew should have gone out of his way to make sure that he was, it was him and Shug D calling all three matches because, unfortunately, the guy who was calling the second match was just a little, I don't know, he was a little awkward for me, and he just didn't have that same... Thing. And then Brian, um, Brian Fury did commentate that second match, by the way. Okay, it was Brian Fury that I didn't necessarily care too much for, and then um, was it Cor- was it Derek Corbis or was it um, who was it on the third one? Was it Corbis or was it what's his name Carter on the th- on the third one? Yeah, on the third one it was Corbis and Shug D. Okay, and Corbis. Has all, I've actually never liked Corbett on commentary. I've heard him a couple times. But, like, he's not as bad as when the EYFBO guys get on there. Like, they're honestly the worst. And then, you know, Dickinson is fucking terrible. So, I just think that... Because Dickinson just... Uh, Dickinson is good at being Chris Dickinson on commentary, but he's bad at being a commentator. Yeah, but that's, but, that's, like, but that's, like, pretty much, like, everyone in Beyond except, like, Hero, Shug D, and, like, like a few other people. Like, everyone else, like, like shouldn't be anywhere near a commentating table. Yeah, and and should be is honestly awesome. I wouldn't be surprised, or I'd be surprised if it ever happened. But someone should try to scoop him up and have him do commentary more regularly because he's good. Yeah. He is very good at commentary for what he's doing. I mean, playing up the Grisham height thing, I thought was amazing because he made it into a strength. But so the overall, I guess this is supposed to be my star ratings, right? Yeah. The overall presentation affects it for me, and it's tough for me to say for sure, but this is how it goes for my star ratings. So the first match is either four-star or three-star, right? It's one or the other. The second match is, is then three-and-a-quarter or four-and-a-quarter, and the third match is three-and-a-half three or four-and-a-half. I'm probably going to go three. I might just be caught up in the moment, and that's why I'm thinking it's four-star because that's pretty high. But either way, it does – they increased by a quarter star each match. So the first match was even three stars, second match was three and a quarter, the last match was three and a half. I thought that they were all worked really well. I do think that as a whole, the presentation was bigger, kind of the, the, the it was bigger than the sum of its parts. It was a bigger kind of presentation as a whole thing, but um, I just, like I said, I just, there's so many what ifs and there's so many issues in the presentation, but the matches, the entering stuff was just flawlessly executed. Yeah, like, I'm more of a generous um, grader when it comes to my star ratings. Like, anyone that's, like, seen my um, star rating list for the year, like, knows, like, how, like, I'm, like, not super strict about it. Like, I don't have any, like, specific criteria of how I view those things. So, like, I think I gave both Flesh and Ripped Off in the Primal Life matches four and a quarter, but I would say the ripped off in the Primal Life match is better. Um, for American Rana, like, I don't know, like, I'm really, really stuck in between going four and a half and four and three quarters, and I'm, I think I might go with the four and three quarters, because I just thought the storytelling in that match was so fucking excellent. It felt like the perfect cap-off for a trilogy. Um, I'm not gonna lie, that 
way they did the double pen, like, might have just given it another quarter of a star, because I just thought, like, they did something that I've never seen before. And I will give um, bonus points, in a way, for innovation, and making me, you know, not just, like, have my jaw drop with crazy sequences and moves, but have my jaw drop with, my God, that was so damn creative. How has no one ever thought of that? So... And that ripped up, and that um, America Rana match will probably finish in my top ten for the year. Honestly, like I thought it was um, that good. Um, so I guess not. Now that we're off of that, do you have um, any more thoughts to offer on that um, topic? I mean, it's, like you said, it's just a shame people aren't paying attention. The third match, like you said, it wasn't that finish was cool and different, and and there's the double pin thing, but. At the same time, also, like, there was more stuff in the match that was yeah. different and innovative and cool. So I think, if anything, the match really deserves a lot of credit for being kind of different and special and, and not just another match. Um, I think it, it's... When I talked about the second match, or while we were talking about the second match, and I brought up kind of Zack Sabre Jr.'s inability to bring main event style to the U.S. I think I really did so in a way where I was planning on we were going to kind of blow that out of the water once we got to the third match, and I think he really did. Um, I think he delivered in the main event way with Grisham. But at the same time, I don't know if I can 100% say that that match felt like an epic main event. Um, it, it was a really good match, but... It's a problem with Beyond. Beyond main events are just difficult because they don't... It's such a stupid little thing, but the fact that they don't have a title makes it hard to necessarily take main events super seriously for me. And I'm not... like I don't always think that the main event has to always be a title match, but knowing that this match is just in a vacuum, this series is just in a vacuum, and... And it's why Lucha works for some people, right? And, and Lucha, hair versus mask match is more important than a title match, right? Yeah. But, but for me, it's not. And for me, if you're not, if there's no way that you're going to get a shot at a title or win a title from this match, then it just, it, it rings just slightly more hollow to me than if I know that there's something that they're going for bigger than this that's not just personal. You know, it's not just about saying that I'm the man. So that's kind of my overall thought here. Is I just think, yes, Beyond has its problems. Um, it's an amazing company to just see a guy who's willing to go, like I said, just fuck it and throw things at the wall and do whatever. And the highs are just amazingly high. The lows are ungodly low. And it's like, why not watch it? If you can, like, you should be watching it just to see this cool, different thing. But... There are some important tropes of wrestling that I just kind of need to really take a wrestling product seriously, and Beyond kind of misses some of those. So it kind of affects this overall story. I guess like that's kind of my closing thoughts. It's like if there had been builds, if there had been promos, if there was kind of more consequences to the match, if I felt like this was important, like this could have been something all-time special and. They, they delivered in ring, they did the best with what they could, but it's just, just missing that last little spark. And that's kind of my closing thoughts on this trilogy. Yeah, um, 
I thought we did a really good job trying to um, capture what made this special. And if we didn't do enough to, you know, go get you to check these matches out, then I don't know what will. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and this goes into an individual person. And this person, I mean, in this bubble of wrestling fandom where everything gets scrutinized and picked apart, um, this person seems to catch... Um, a little bit of flack from certain people for not being as intense or not being as emotive or some people have even said he is not charismatic which you know when we talk about him you know Zack Sabre Jr. in 2016 is way more charismatic than Zack Sabre Jr. was in 2008 so now like what do you like what do you make of Zack Sabre Jr. um as a performer in his growth over the years because we've talked about it privately um, had conversations about what I think Zach's persona was and I even had an epiphany with Zach this year like the reason why I'm so high on Zach now is like I kind of had an epiphany for what Zach is and we talked about it it's Zach is posh he's cool he's calm he's collected he's cocky but that's not who Zach really is And then when we take Zach to a point where that cockiness won't get him to victory, where it won't get him to edge that he so desperately craves, he'll start, you know, cracking apart and he'll get obsessed with, you know, trying to get the one up on somebody. And I think that's where he starts showing his fire. And that's why Zach's fire, I think, is so much more interesting than anybody else's because you need to take Zach to a certain point to get that. You don't. You just don't get ran, like Zack Saber Jr. randomly being, you know, angry and intense. You need to get him there for that to happen. So, um, do you have um any thoughts on that before we get to like his earlier career? Yeah, no. I mean, you kind of hit it, and, and the way that I, the way I've always explained it for Zach is that he's kind of a chav. He's a chavish lad that's from. He's from a little village that's not really known for much, um, who has this wrestling thing that he's at, and it's kind of taken him, it's just him away from his modest life, and this is like getting deep into the psychology of the character, right? And this is like really harkening into the real life and the cafe and what's what. But it's like, has this talent and this skill that's taken him away from his roots, and now... He's on the big stage and he's, you know, going to London and he's going all over the world and he's going to Japan. And now it's like, yeah, you know, he's buying into his own hype and he's playing off this kind of posh character who just thinks he's above everything and the fucking, just the shitty techno music. It's like, 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 like nothing bothers him, like, you know. Yeah. But realistically, at his core, he's that same shitty little kid from the village who has this fragile ego and, you know, can't deal with the idea of anyone thinking that they're better than him and he has to always prove that he's the best at everything and, and it just, it does get into this deeper realm of storytelling that, fuck, I mean, how crazy do you have to be to start, like, inventing these weird storylines in your head about this guy, but honestly, I, I see it, I see the through line, I see the narrative in his matches and in his career that it can't, it almost feels like there's no way that it's just a circumstance that it just happens. He really, it's in every match. And like you said, it's like, it 
takes the right opponents to bring out that side because if you don't push back to the breaking point, he just stays the cocky little prick who, you know, out finesses you and then just eats you up. But if you do push him to that next level and he does start to crack and start to, you know, the veneer kind of starts to peel away and then you see that, you know, the little kid from the Isle of Sheppy, you know, his dad is... Zach Faber Sr., who's probably like a fisherman, or, you know, from the docks, and then that's when you start to really get to the, the meat of who the guy is. And I can't imagine that he just accidentally puts this narrative into all of his matches across the whole thing. So, you know, I just, I feel like, I, sometimes I feel insane, like we're just creating this insane narrative that's not there, but how could it not be there? The pieces just seem to fit so well, you know? Yeah, no, and I think that maybe the issue with Zach is like, I don't like. I'm not gonna say Zach is an ace. He's not because he's not like an ace anywhere. But he carries himself like he's above certain things. Like the way like I've like I've seen people complain about you know Masawa or Jumbo like feeling like kind of stoic. And I don't think Zach is stoic, but he's so calm and so arrogant, and he's not like being arrogant in like a typical like sh- like shit faced heel is. He's being arrogant as a babyface, and it's not really endearing, but he still, like, gets mostly cheered. So, that's just something interesting about him, and, like, the reason why I've kind of, like, started viewing Zach differently is, like, when I've gone back and watched his matches, and I was recently watching um, a comp of his matches from WXW, and it blew my mind. Like, people... Like, people complain about fucking Zack's physique, and he looks like a nerd, and all that stuff. Go watch 2009 Zack Sabre Jr. (laughs) With his long, like, with his long, like, raver hair. Like, he owns, like, a whole bunch of Affliction shirts, and, like, a whole bunch of just, like, weird shit that you would associate with somebody in 2009. Like, go watch that, that Zack Sabre Jr. Look how uncool he looks. And then look at the transformation to the guy that we have in 2016. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, Shinsuke Nakamura going to Mexico and then coming back as, you know, the king of charisma. But I'm saying there was obviously a change in the guy where whatever beginnings that he had, whatever, like, weird look that he had, you know, that all of that was gone. He started to look like a real star. And he felt like a star whenever he started to walk out of the, um, walk out the curtain. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I, think, I think, I mean, this is just an anecdote, but it's like, like this is how bad I am as a wrestling nerd. My, my wife has an opinion on Zack Sabre Jr.'s uh, change in appearance. You know, she's, she's, she's not really a wrestling, wrestling fan, but she's gone to enough PWG shows with me and watched enough wrestling, wrestling, wrestling that she's like, we were watching, we were re-watching the, the matches from Beyond last night with Grisham, just like you were, and she said, like, I kind of feel weird, she said. At first, I liked that Zack Sabre Jr. looks like an adult now, but now I kind of miss when he used to look like a little kid. And, and you know, it's, it's so funny to have her say that. She's like, yeah, I just kind of miss the old Zack Sabre Jr. where he was like, he looked like a little boy, he was like creepy, that he was like in his underwear, and now he's just like, he looks like a man. And it's so true, he's so polished. And what gets overlooked, and it's, it's a picture I took, and it's my kind of my profile picture, um, on the Slack chat, which is that picture of Zach Sabre Jr. wearing the Yoshinari Agawa shirt. Um, and I think it gets overlooked just how close Zach Sabre Jr. was with Ogawa. Yeah. Um, and just how much he took from Ogawa. 
because, I mean, that kind of shitty throwing a fit, I deserve the world attitude was really that classic early O'Gallagher. It's kind of Jim Brakes and O'Gallagher mixture that he has with this kind of crybaby but, but he, he has an updated kind of cool factor to it that mixes in where Ogawa did have that with the kind of, you know, the zebra print and the, oh, I'm so badass, but he was just a shitty, I'll cheat and do all this fucked up stuff to win kind of rat bastard where, like, he was so obvious. Well, Zach plays it a little bit cooler, but it's in there. And, you know, when I took that picture of Zach, I was like, hey, you know, this is a weird thing, but I just want a picture of you wearing that shirt. And, and he, he was, was so excited. excited. And he and said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah that's, that's my boss. boss. <laughs> you know, he referred to him as the boss because he's, he's a young boy. boy. And, and, he, you know, he had to do, and that's, that's where Zach's transformation, transformation happened, was in Noah, under Ogawa. And, and that's where Zach went from looking like a kid with, you know, seen hair, fucking, you know, with just a goofy no body. I mean, people think he has no body now, but they don't really know where he came from. You know, he really had absolutely no body before. He's, like, kind of tan now. I hear people joking about how pale he looks, but he looks pretty tan at PWG for an Englishman, you know? And it's just, like, that all came from Ogawa and, like, realizing that, yeah, I'm a really good technical wrestler. I'm getting better and better, and he's kind of... But he's learning personality, and he's learning how to be a star. It's almost goofily, it's almost like when he went to Noah, they really could have put him with a lot of different guys to be like their young boy and trainer needs them. And it's almost like when Daniel Bryan went to WWE and they were like, you need to train under the Miz because he's got personality. Like you've got wrestling figured out, but you need to learn how to be a star. And that's, and that's kind of what happened with Zack Sabre Jr. It was like, Ogawa, for all things, was a lot of personality. And yeah. he came across like a star and a character. Um, meanwhile, his in-ring was good. I've always said that I really like Ogawa's style. I thought he was ahead of his time, really. For all Japan, I think that no one else was working that style. And now, people don't realize it, but it was very, like, UK, World of Sport-inspired style that not, not a lot of people, people were, were doing in Japan at the time, and he really brought, brought that in and had that kind of crybaby attitude or crybaby style to him that was, like, innovative for the time. But he was, at all times, a star. And that's what Zach Sabre Jr. learned from him, and you're so right. Like, that transformation almost seemed like overnight because it was happening where people weren't paying attention to it as it was kind of, you know, just toiling away in the Noah Jr. tag leagues. But, but then he comes back, back to America, America after, after he had been, been here with Chikara. He had been, been here, I think, with even some other companies like CZW. And oh, yeah, no, speaking of CZW, like, um, yeah, you mentioned it. And there was a match from 2010 where yeah, he yeah. faced um TJP. I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in CZW. And it was like, Zach looks like a complete geek. Like, there's no other way to put it. But he's so yeah, yeah. good at wrestling. And it was like a, like, almost like a battle art style match. They're just kicking the living shit out of each other. And just imagine, like, Zack Sabre Jr., who is, like, ten times more charismatic now, like, doing that exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. And it, 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 exactly. exactly. I feel so dumb for that bad pun that I heard in my head. Um, <laughs> but that's what happened. And, and, yeah, it's like, he came here years ago and no one gave a fuck. And then, then when he came back, and, you know, I, I like to take some credit for it, because when he showed up at PWG, I was the first person to buy a shirt from him, because no one else knew who the fuck he was. I, uh, I, uh, I got, got it for cheaper than I was supposed to because it was a team suplex shirt and he said 25 and I was like, I don't have change. So just give it to me for 20 or, you know, I'll give you change in a bit. And he's like, ah, just don't worry about it. And then within moments, I saw that his charisma, his skill, his look, his everything, 
I, you know, within the first three minutes of interaction with Adam Cole, the crowd was in love with this guy. And then he left that night, all of his shirts were gone. You know, he sold out that night. I was the first person to buy a shirt. I was losing my mind when he came out. I was going crazy. I was telling everyone how great he was. And he got over in one fucking match, in three minutes, interacting with Adam Cole. Well, when he came to the U.S., you know, ten years ago, no one gave a fuck. So, so it's just, it, it, it really goes to show that, like, that, like having, having that star power made a huge difference. difference. Having, having that charisma makes a huge difference. difference. So, yeah, that's, that's like, like my long-winded rant, rant about Zack Sabre Jr.'s transformation, because the early Zack Sabre Jr. was just as talented in the ring, but he didn't have that spark, you know? Yeah, definitely, and that's, like, something, like, you could always see that this guy, like, had some kind of genius in him as far as being an in-ring performer goes. Like, I'll go back to, like, a... Um, 30 minute Iron Man match that he had with Cesaro back then known as Claudio Castagnoli is like if you listen to this podcast you know that but like it's just the fact that 2009 Zach like you still see you know how good he is and like his offense was different back then he was still doing like springboards and shit and um he was I think he was more of a you could say he was more of a shooty guy actually yeah. around that time like he like had like more of a stiffness to him and then it didn't happen until like 2011, as you mentioned, where he, like, he still has the kicks, but he's going all in with the homage to the stars of World of Sport Pass gimmick that he pretty much has going for him now. And I think it's just interesting, like, I, like, again, Zach still has the striking in his offense, and he still is a, like, hell of a striker, but, it's just funny to see how he went from just, like, throwing roundhouse kicks and all that shit, like, on a regular basis, like, even more often than he does now, and to seeing him become, like, more of the constant grapple guy. Um, so, that's it when it comes to Zach. We've talked about that a bunch. And we'll finish the show off with, um, Timothy Thatcher at WrestleMania Weekend. And this was something I, like, this this wasn't something I initially planned on talking about, but because of my conversations with Tim regarding this topic, it felt natural to do it with him while he's on, because he's one of the only people that I saw, you know, applauding the angle and saying that he was a fan of it, when a lot of people, you know, admittedly myself, I was not really digging it. Hmm, so, um... For those that may not have been following along with the angle, could you give some kind of um, Cliff Notes version of what the angle was, Tim? Yeah, yeah. The Thatcher crisis, as it were. So, Timothy Thatcher had this meteoric rise um, overall in the indies and specifically in Evolve, where people were clamoring for Thatcher. I mean... It was the same time Vic Busick was starting to get his name out there. People were paying attention, and you know Drew Gulak and people. Uh, some people, one person in particular, who will remain nameless, who's now probably like very firmly in the anti-Thatcher Thatcher camp. I remember early on being one of the only other people I knew who knew who the fuck Timothy Thatcher was, openly talking about how Timothy Thatcher was the best of the grapple guys. Um, that soured very quickly with this angle as Thatcher had this meteoric rise, as I said. He missed time um, multiple times. And it really comes down to what is Thatcher? We don't know Thatcher. 
I mean, we really don't. He is an enigma. He's not a guy who puts all of his shit out there. He has an old Twitter account that has bad, like, reappropriated Chuck Norris jokes about himself. Uh, that's just really terrible. I would recommend looking for it if you can find it on uh, the Twitter.com. I'm not, I don't remember the handle off the top of my head, but the guy, from all accounts, has a decent career outside of wrestling. The guy has specific things that he's interested in. Um, from what I've heard, he spent his own money and drove up to Battle Arts Academy uh, and just spent like a couple weeks up there training just because he wanted to and essentially missed a bunch of bookings, probably took vacation from his real job that supposedly is very good and just did that instead of wrestling because he wanted to train with uh, Ishikawa. Um, I don't blame him because if I was him, that's what I would want to do too. <laughs> but that's what he cares more about, you know? Like, he cares more about wrestling and being this amazing wrestler. So he's taken time off for the bursted eardrum thing. He's taken time off for staph infections. He's taken time... So, and the thing is, you never know if it's real or fake, if it's just that he's taking time off because he doesn't want to wrestle, if it's work stuff, if it's what it is. But he's not super committed to professional wrestling, and so they turned around and gave him the title. Um... I mean, he is committed to professional wrestling, but he's got other stuff, and he's not necessarily committed to Evolve or to a specific company. He is, honestly, probably going to go down in history as being the greatest weekend warrior of all time. Like, the guy who's made the biggest name for himself, gotten the most respect, and been considered, like, one of the best wrestlers, who's actually just, like, a weekend warrior guy who's not really putting his focus into making wrestling his career, which is kind of insane to think about. Um... And so they go into this big evolved weekend, and the idea is that there's this unbeatable kid who Thatcher actually beat once, but off a of fluke where they're trying to say that he need him in the balls, and they're going to go at it again on the first night of, well, on the first show of what's going to end up being three big shows for Evolve. Within that match, Timmy Thatcher's arm gets busted in a cross-arm breaker, and he spends the rest of the weekend, which is two more matches, essentially just selling the damage to this arm and leading into the overall big angle. Um, and that's essentially it. So the, the young undefeatable up-and-comer is Matthew Riddle, who people consider the greatest wrestler on the planet now, the best rookie that's ever existed, um, essentially just the greatest wrestler. He's the Messiah and God all at the same time. He's <laughs> so phenomenal. And that was kind of the story. So... In a weird way, I think that they set Thatcher up to fail in the storyline, and I think he over-delivered. I don't know how much you want me to get into this right now, because um, you did say you wanted Cliff Notes version. So that's kind of what happened. The idea was Thatcher came into this, he beat this kid once, but people think he cheated, and now this kid injures him in a way where they throw out the match because he didn't break the hold, and now Thatcher's arm is fucked, and then we're going into two more big shows where Thatcher should be delivering at world champion level, but in storyline, his arm is too messed up for him to be able to do that. Yeah, you did a good job, like, pretty much nailing everything about what this storyline was. So, going into, I guess we'll beat Thatcher's final two matches on that weekend. And I guess I like to say my thing on Riddle, I mean, I thought that Riddle match was good. Like, simply good. And for a lot of fans, it under-delivered. And then the angle on top of it, I know, it just soured people immediately when it came to that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, like here's the pro- here's the problem. There's a bunch of people going into that show that are super marked because they're at probably their first of all show ever. They've been watching it online for this whole time, and they're super jazzed up for Riddle, and they think he's the greatest thing in the world. So having Thatcher's first match end with a fuck finish where Riddle had him beat, or they think Riddle had him beat, and he had to kind of like get the referee to give him the match, was just setting it up for everyone to turn on him. Yeah. I just think that, that was, it was kind of unfair for Thatcher in that regard, you know? Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, I actually think that if you were going to do this angle, you should have done it after WrestleMania weekend. I mean, like, if this is, like, admittedly, like, your, you know, biggest platform that you've ever been on, you have the WWE partnership going on, WWE people in the crowd, um, Drew Galloway is doing, like, his big anti-WWE angle. Like, you have all these things going on. And then, like, the stuff surrounding your title, like, became bullshit. Like, you you put bullshit around your championship, around your top guy. The guy that's supposed to be your top guy, you just put him in a whole bunch of bullshit where he should probably be the shining star of the weekend. And that just didn't yeah, he happen. Should have been. So, he should have been the star of the weekend and not a single one of his matches was the main event, which I think is another thing that should be pointed out. You know? Yeah, um, on Evolve 58, the main event was um, Cash Point versus um, Heroes eventually die, Heroes eventually, um, eventually die, correct? Yeah. Um, Evolve 59, that was... Um, what was that actually? Catchpoint versus um, Gargano and uh, Galloway. No, no, it was actually Ricochet versus Osprey actually. Oh shit! I'm sorry. Yeah, that was Ricochet versus yeah. Osprey on of all fifty nine and the W one Super Show. Um, was the big trio. That was the big um, six man tag match, and yeah. at no point did it feel like Thatcher was like a big star like this entire weekend, which is insane to me, considering how much time and effort they put into building Thatcher as this incredible champion and then like in just like two days it felt like it was like gone like it felt like the aura of Thatcher was gone in just two days which is insane to me and one of those things where Gabe is a very hit and miss guy with his angles and this is one of those times where this was like as far as the angle goes I thought it just was terrible timing and actually hurt the guy that they planned on putting so much stock in. Um, but a thing, a thing that you always pointed out is that Thatcher actually did really well with what he was given. And I think we can turn that into the matches now. And we're not going to go over them because it's probably been a while since either of them, either of us have seen these matches. I watched them both today, actually. Oh wow! I actually have a good memory of the Callahan match. But, yeah, no, but we don't have to break them down. But like, I just wanted to watch them anyways. And and honestly, rewatching them, like the Callahan Riddle match was so much longer than I remember. Or not Callahan Riddle, the Thatcher Riddle match was so much longer than I remembered. Yeah. Um, the scroll match was interesting because, well, you know what? Go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting you. This is your show. No, it was fine. Like, because again, I didn't plan on talking like in depth about them. So you can like point out things that you notice about the matches. It's fine with me. Okay, so the the scroll match was honestly at the height of when scroll was at its best, and it was when people were. It's so funny to me because I just feel like people were hating on scroll at that time for saying chicken wing too much, but it was actually when he was at his best as a heel and he was the most focused that he's been. And then now that I've actually found him to kind of be slumping off and having worse matches, I feel like people are turning around on him and starting to say that he's better. And it's just so goofy. I'm like, is really screaming chicken wing making the difference? But um. 
But that match was like one of the better scroll matches. He was very focused throughout the whole thing. It was one of their first interactions with each other, so they were really kind of feeling each other out and had a good mix. And then the the Callahan Thatcher match was probably one of my top Callahan matches of the year. I felt like he really delivered strongly for what he was doing here. Um, Thatcher sold all the way through this storyline that I feel like made the match. But, and I feel like made the whole weekend where it was it was really like overarching and, and it's nice that we're doing kind of two trilogies back to back and this trilogy was Thatcher kind of you know DQ the first match was thrown out because of bullshit second match he straight up loses and third match Thatcher finds it in him to come back and he has to use some nefarious tactics that he wouldn't normally use but he does what he can and he kind of like became stronger through his injury which I found very interesting storytelling wise to show that like it almost I don't know if you follow Dragon Ball Z and this is kind of a dumb thing but it kind of reminds me of like how the the Saiyans get stronger in battle if they're not when killed I, they come back like, stronger afterwards and that was Thatcher <laughs> I like the Dragon Ball Z reference that you got in there and yeah I am a big Dragon Ball Z fan so I appreciate that <laughs> but yeah I, just, I felt like that's what it was it was like in the match with Riddle, he didn't get killed, he got injured, and then as he's able to come back, he just keeps getting stronger and stronger, and it takes him to the final match where the title's on the line, he's able to pull it out and, and win the match anyway. So, I just, for the match quality, I think that all three matches, I ended up giving them three and a half stars. So they all stayed at that just above, like, just great. Like, middle road great. Not perfect, not amazing, not match of the year contender, but they all were like way better than just a regular wrestling match, and they all had really cool stories and great selling and awesome moves. So, you know, that's where I'm at with the wrestling. I I, I don't necessarily know that the in-ring was phenomenal, but the story for me was where it was at. Um, I, I'll give you I'll give you the floor. I secede the floor for a moment here. Yeah, and you know, I'll admit, like in the moment, watching this, watching all three of these shows, I was really pissed off. I, I was really irritated with how Thatcher was presented. Like, I thought Thatcher was like a top three wrestler of the year in 2015. I thought he was fucking phenomenal. World beater. Like, I mean, I even went as far as saying, like, there was no better seller in wrestling than Timothy Thatcher. And I still yeah, believe... I don't disagree with you. And I still believe that to some extent. And that will be a future show, like, when I'm talking about, you know, you know, selling and how there's different avenues in that. And I thought Thatcher was like the best seller in wrestling. And, you know, this, like this entire, like the story that they were telling was about Thatcher selling, but the timing of it just pissed me off so much. And it kind of like ruined, and it kind of like sapped my enjoyment of a guy that I just loved to death. And in hindsight, you know, I probably should have like been less critical of Thatcher and more, you know, took that as an issue with um the booking obviously so when i go back and look and this is something that you know i just wanted to talk about is the commitment to the angle and there's like not a lot of guys that you will see like sell the arm like death the way that thatcher did like he kept that thing close to his body as mo as much as he can as much as he could without like making the match impossible to do like he was able to make the arm look like it was dead it was 
fuck beyond belief that if he used it, he would be in so much pain that he would be not like not be able to continue. Yeah, when he goes for the Fujiwara, he clasps a um, a double wrist lock for a moment, and he winces in pain, and he can't hold it because the arm is so messed up. Like he drops, you know, the gut wrench suplex. He does so much little stuff that other guys would just go, well, I gotta hit moves. And Thatcher was kind of like, no, my arm is fucked up. I'm not just gonna be able to hit all my moves, you know. And this will like, like, like this will this is like something that'll make you happy, but. It's something that, you know, a Kenny Omega does, where he, like, like Kenny is so committed to selling a limb when, like, he's, like, getting worked over that he'll, like, hop on one leg and do his moonsault. Or when he's doing his, um, powerbomb, there'll, like, be a little delay in him wincing in pain. Like, one-armed powerbomb. When he threw that one-armed powerbomb on Tanahashi, that was, like... The yeah. moment where I knew that Pete, my partner from This Week in Wrestling, was going to fall in love with Kenny Omega. Yeah, like, Kenny Omega will do, will do stuff like that because he's so committed to selling that limb and working around it. And Thatcher, like, he did that this entire weekend. He did. And, you know, he's not going to get enough credit for it because I do think he was genuinely great. And this level of commitment is, like, kind of rare in wrestling. Where he's so committed to telling this story and telling this angle, despite the bad position he's in, despite how shitty the angle may be as far as outcome goes and the follow-up, he's so committed right now, in that moment, to telling that story that, you know, it's hard to, like, be critical of Thatcher. Like, at this point, you know, looking back on it, I would, like, I'd probably have to, like, shoot Thatcher up my rankings for Wrestler of the Year because, as a feat, I'm not sure if any, anyone was as, um committed to their craft as Thatcher was. And right. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, man, it's something that I've seen, I've like seen turn people off. I've seen someone call it um, masturbatory that what Thatcher was doing that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to name names because I actually like that person. But like, I've seen like someone call it masturbatory and I'm like, well, Okay, you have to be fair, though, because he was selling the right arms, so it would be very difficult for him to be masturbatory. <laughs> That's also a fair point. But, like, I feel like because people don't like the, didn't like that your style to begin with, that it made him an easy target for people for an angle that wasn't his fault and that he was just making the most of it as he could and probably gave the best performances that he possibly could while trying to make the angle seem convincing. Well, okay, so here's the thing. On paper, as you said, Thatcher is one of the greatest sellers in wrestling, current day. And I don't think that that's going far out on the limb to say that. So, on paper, this was a good idea. The problem is, and I've made this point many times, and I've made this point even with Tomohiro Ishii, and I think people don't get it, is that Thatcher and Ishii are both amazing sellers, but people don't realize that. People don't realize that that's what they like about these guys. Um, they appreciate it when they're watching, and they get caught up in the moment, and they enjoy it, but your average kind of more mainstream smart, which is, this is insane to say, but your average, like, 
run-of-the-mill smart fan who doesn't really like break every match down and give it star ratings doesn't realize that the reason why they like Thatcher matches is just selling, which is something that I had picked up earlier on in the year, or actually even the year before in 2015. I was like, Thatcher is a guy that I think a lot of people think of as a grapple fuck, oh my god, his stuff is so intense, but realistically what puts him over is his selling, so on paper, Dave was like, I got a great idea. We're going to put together this story where Thatcher gets to showcase his strongest suit, which is selling throughout the entire weekend. And the reason why people reject that is because even though Thatcher put on this technical clinic in being the most amazing seller, they don't really, people don't really appreciate that because they want to have matches. And these turned into kind of showcases in selling and less matches. And to refer to it as masturbatory is, in some ways, very, very ignorant. Because if Timothy Thatcher was being masturbatory in his match, you know, kind of curation, what he would have done is gone out and had battle arts-style grappling exhibitions with all three of these guys. Especially with Matt Riddle, because Matt Riddle is a former UFC guy. He knows jiu-jitsu. He knows, you know, amateur wrestling style. He could have totally had this really amazing grappling match. But he didn't, because selling, I think, would probably be the least masturbatory thing you can do in wrestling. I don't know if I'm insane in saying that. But the idea that you would try to put over an injury for yourself when realistically the whole point of the term selling is that you're selling it to the audience. So there's no way to really say that overselling was done for yourself. He was selling to the crowd. It was intentionally for the crowd, specifically to get the storyline over to the crowd. The whole thing is about the crowd. So that just, it rings really hollow when it comes across like someone who doesn't really understand what they're saying or what they mean to be saying, you know? Yeah, like, I don't understand how you can say masturbatory and then say like well, well what like and then look at it as he sacrificed match quality like again he was in a really shitty spot this mania weekend he really was right but you know in spite of that he sacrificed his match quality with everybody watching to tell this story and i don't think that was like him you know going out of his way to do something for himself like to like pleasure his own ego, like I thought that was to make the crowd buy in to to something that was already doomed to fail from the start. Like he put all of himself into trying to tell that angle, and right. it just like kind of seemed like weird to me to punish a guy for trying to get something over. Yeah, he put everything he had into it, and then here's okay. I'm going to break down kind of, this isn't even psychology, but just like the inner workings of what I would assume happens backstage or the whole thing. Because I don't know how abreast you are of the rumors that were coming out of the time. Um, I, but, saw, I saw a few rumors. I'm not, like, not the full story, but I did see a few of the rumors that were floating around. Right. And I don't know the story, obviously, because I'm not a Scoops guy. I never have been, never will be, don't care about Scoops. Um... There was a rumor going around that once Thatcher came back through the curtain after that last match, Gabe Sapolsky ripped him a new asshole. He was super pissed off. He couldn't believe that what Thatcher did this whole weekend. Blah, blah, blah. If that was true, why would Gabe Sapolsky put together essentially the storyline, the match finishes, 
um, give Thatcher all the time off, and turn around, and when Thatcher returned, he never took the title off of him. Um, the part where Catchpoint comes afterwards and he drops the belt to them, all of that had to have been booked. None of that was done on the fly because Gabe was so mad. Um, you also have to turn around and look that after that, Thatcher didn't wrestle any matches anywhere. Um, for months, he wrestled at AAW once against Silas Young, which was months later, and then everything else he did was local in, like, either a couple... In California. And then a couple matches in Northern California. Um, so it was like his home promotions that are very near where he lives, and one match where he had to come down here, and one match where he was flown into Chicago. Or, yeah, I think it's Chicago, right? Yeah. So that was really taking time off. I mean, it, you'd have to be insane to not realize that. He probably was doing something. That's why I set that table earlier. You know, I was, I was intentionally doing that. The psychology of the podcast. When I talked about his commitment to wrestling. Um, there was a reason why Thatcher was gone for so long, and it has to do with Thatcher's personal life. So what that tells me is Gabe Sapolsky put together an angle where Timothy Thatcher could take time off, go do whatever he was doing, keep the title, and then come back and still be champion. So that doesn't feel to me like Gabe Sapolsky was super pissed off for Timothy Thatcher going into business for himself. Um, I feel like Timothy, or I feel like Gabe Sapolsky came up with an idea that really put a little bit too much faith in the crowd. Um, and to, I mean, to lesser extent, a little bit too much faith in Timothy Thatcher. Um, I think Timothy Thatcher did very well. I personally enjoyed it a lot, but I guess he didn't do well enough to get made like the most of the crowd who watched it to appreciate the story as much as they should have and as much as Gabe thought that they would. Um, so like I said, that's why I say he put a little bit too much faith in the crowd and Thatcher because maybe Thatcher could have pulled this off. I don't know what else he could have done because I really enjoyed it, but maybe... There was a way that he could have made this work to where mainstream audiences actually still enjoyed it. And I think another thing, that, oh, um, I was just gonna add something, and then you can like continue. Um, I feel like that, like the angle itself, like maybe got overshadowed by um, you know, the Galloway heel turn, and you know, the excitement swirling around that with Galloway cutting shoot promos on the WWE, and you overshadowed your champion, like. And that comes back to, you know, Thatcher being put in bad positions where he got overshadowed by this worked shoot angle done by a former WWE guy on WrestleMania weekend. So, like, naturally with that, even if he's the champion, Thatcher was the afterthought with two angles going on, you know, that same weekend. Right, exactly. And and once again, like I said, card placement, each one of his matches were, none of his matches were the main events of the show, even though he's the champion. So he was really set up in a weird way to fail from, like I said, from the start. The fact that the first guy that they start the angle with is, is really beloved by the fans, even though he's supposed to be a heel. Um, the fact that he then turns around and has a match with Marty Scroll, where Scroll actually beats him at a time where... A lot of really smart wrestling fans didn't like Marty Scroll because they thought he was terrible for shouting chicken wing too much. So you turn around and you have him get like a cheap DQ victory over a guy that everyone loves. Then you have him turn around and lose to a guy that everyone hates. And then he has this middle, well, not even middle of the road, but then he has this okay match where he doesn't really do a lot of wrestling and he mostly just sells against a guy who I think at the time was like, 
powerfully overrated for being better than he is. And I think uh, that kind of bears out because I think during this time, not even during this time, but a little bit after this time, I was on my screed against how can anyone think Sammy Callahan is the you know best wrestler in the world. Um, and I feel like the proof was in the pudding because within a few months of me kind of going off about how ridiculous everyone was being about Callahan, a lot of that, you know, Flair says Callahan's the best wrestler in the world talk died down. So I think, you know, I ended up being right on that one. And a lot of people just were caught up in the fact that he was the new shiny toy at WWE. I feel like Gabe was the same thing. They thought, we'll give him the showcase, that's where we'll sell his ass off, make him look like a million bucks. But realistically, Callahan doesn't have it. And he wasn't able to deliver on his end because... That match should have felt like a big main event championship match, and I feel like Callahan didn't really bring it. There were times in this match where all Callahan was doing was throwing his shitty-looking big boots over and over again, and they kind of don't get over with the crowd super hard. So I just I felt like Thatcher was not in a good position for this whole match. I feel like he really delivered or for the whole weekend, and I feel like he really delivered for what he was doing. And I would recommend a lot of people who were super pissed off about you know the second evolved show stream going down midway through and oh my god I can't believe how much he's selling and he's not doing enough moves and he's supposed to be the champion I would recommend that you all go back and watch these three matches like I just did and, and really appreciate just how good Thatcher was yeah and I think that's um a good way to end the show off um for the um pilot episode I want to thank you a lot because I Thought that actually turned out even better than I expected. Actually, um, any me too. Yeah, any plugs that you have um, that you want to get out the way? Well, um, do we have any clue when this podcast is coming out? After SEI for sure. So after okay. everyone gets back from SEI for sure, it's coming out. Okay, I got an interview with the boss. We got Trash Daddy on the um, Lucha Undead podcast. That'll definitely be coming out um, around the same time as this, and we. Really scratch the surface of that little fucker. I did not expect so much from such a young boy. Um, you know, he's only 17 years old and he's already lived a hell of a life. So we really get into it and leave a bunch on the table for next time. So get in there and kind of get those treats and see what's coming up later. Um, this week in wrestling, we're continuing our slog through the G1. Um, I'm all about that base, all about that B block. Um, set it from the start. B block was the killer block, especially because it had Kenny Omega. And then it turned around and evil is the fucking man. So listen to me get hype on what I think might end up being my show of the year just based on match quality. Uh, one of the G1 nights had so many amazing matches that I don't see how I can really argue any other show over it. And like that's only based on like four matches that are match of the year contenders. So I don't see how. I don't see how you can argue. Like, other shows might be really good, but no other show has four Match of the Year contenders on it, I don't think. Um, otherwise, I've got an article that should be coming out on PTVN very shortly. Tomorrow I'm, like, officially not going to do anything but write and watch wrestling. Um, so that should be on there. It's going to be talking about my love affair with PWG and how it was rekindled at the 13th anniversary. And other than that, I would say check out everything else on PTBN Pop. Check out everything else on PTBN PWO. There's a bunch of shit on Wrestling With Words that's awesome, which is probably where you're listening to this, so you already know about that. And, uh, ooh, this is going to be weird. Go to Voices of Wrestling and uh, go to their forums and get involved in the ROH Honor Roll, voting for the you know top 50 ROH wrestlers of all time. Um, and that's all for me for now. All right, and thank you a ton for being on. I felt like we did cover a lot of ground and set the tone for what I hope 
to be a good show going forward. Um, thank you all for listening to Psychology is Dead. And whenever we're back, I hope you listen and thank you for listening to this one.